I guess you're Angela Hayes' mother. That's right. I'm Angela Hayes' mother. So, Mildred Hayes, why did you put up these billboards? My daughter Angela was murdered seven months ago. It seems to me the police department is too busy torturing black folks to solve actual crime. What the hell is this? Dixon, I'm in the middle of my goddamn Easter dinner. Sorry, kids. I know, Chief, but I think we got kind of a problem. Sunshine beating on a good time. I'd do anything to catch your daughter's killer. I don't think those billboards is very fair. The time it took you to get out here whining like a bitch, Willoughby. Some other poor girl's probably out there being butchered right now. You cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. I take full responsibility. Really? Really, yes, sir. It is the reason I sit in this chair. Hello and welcome to the Electric Shadows podcast with me, your host Rob Daniel. As always, very happy to be joined by my learned colleague, Mr Rob Wallace. And as always, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Shall we get the plugs out of the way? Yes, let's do that. You go first because I've got a bit of a throat on, so I'm going to have a sip of tea. You can follow me on Twitter, if you so desire, at Robert M. Wallace. Sorry, at Robert M. Wallace. Um, and uh, you can read my writing, again, if you so desire, at www.ofallthefilmsites.com. And I believe you have a Facebook page for that as well. I do, uh, of all the film sites. Type it into Facebook, it will presumably pop up. I need one of those too. So you can follow me on Twitter at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. Obviously, electric-shadows.com. You can find my stuff on... And I've not got a Facebook page, so I get one of those. You can also subscribe to this on iTunes if you so desire. So they're all the plugs, aren't they? I think that's done. I think there was one other one that I was thinking the other day, thinking, oh yeah, we should say that as well. SoundCloud, yeah, are also on SoundCloud. So if you're on SoundCloud too, then you can check us out there at the Electric Shadows Podcast. I think that's it. I think we should. Yeah. Shall we? Shall we dive into a brace of reviews today? What are we going to review today? Uh, I believe we might be starting off by reviewing three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. We are indeed. And then we will be moving on to Darkest Hour. And I am looking forward to that one. <laughs> Maybe not for the reasons that Joe Wright wants. But anyway, let's start with three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, which is, of course, the latest film by uh, Martin McDonough, uh, who's, who made his directorial debut of one of my actually one of my, one of my favourite comedies in Bruges, and whose uh, previous film, last film before this, was uh, Seven Psychopaths, with which I was less enamoured. Uh, he has also had a sort of a remarkable career as a playwright. He has indeed. His brother is all um, is John Michael, Michael McDonough. McDonough, and it's almost like trying to remember the different people from Game of Thrones. In remembering which of the brothers did what, <laughs> so it's like so. Three billboards isn't done by the Calvary guy, is it? As I know, that was his brother, uh, but it is done by the guy who did War on Everyone. No, that was by his brother as well. <laughs> so, it's, in, it's interesting. One of my thoughts on one of my first thoughts upon, upon seeing Three Billboards is that it feels like, in some ways, a response to uh, more overtly War on Everyone. But there's a touch of sort of Calvary in there as well. Indeed. So looking at the plot synopsis on IMDb, a mother personally challenges the local authorities to solve her daughter's murder when they fail to catch the culprit. Okay, that's that. She does this by hiring three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, um, and puts on there three messages that goad the local sheriff, Chief Willoughby, who's played by Woody Harrelson, into stepping up the investigation again after it's gone a bit cold. 
a year later. This does not go down well with all of the townsfolk, particularly Deputy Dixon, played by Sam Rockwell, who is getting lots of plaudits for his performance here, who really takes against her, and he is someone who, through kind of the limits of, of his intelligence, but also his upbringing is just a bit of a bigger and um, is someone who responds to any threat with violence rather than actually thinking it through. Frances McDormand plays Mildred, who is the mother who has hired these billboards. And yeah, I thought, I saw this, uh, this was a closing film at the London Film Festival last year. You'd seen it already, hadn't you? Yeah, they did a screening of this at work. Um, actually, sometime really quite a lot earlier than that. Yeah, there is, there are at least three really impressive performances in this. Um, should we start with um, Frances McDormand, who mm. uh, seems like, who has been nominated for a Golden Globe. Uh, did she know? Did she win the Golden Globe? She did win the Golden she, Globe. She did yeah. win the Golden Globe, and she, I'm not sure if she is BAFTA nominated, but she's picking up a lot of Oscar buzz. She, of course, already has an Oscar. She does um, for Fargo. For Fargo, and it's interesting viewing this role as a counterpoint to that because you know that film she plays a, a police officer, of course, uh, sort of the embodiment of a Minnesota nice. Yeah, and in this, it's very much Missouri nasty. It is because nasty. she because Mildred is not a pleasant person she is angry and rude you know she's somebody and other characters do call her out on this that you would not really want to spend any time around but she is somebody she's she's a person on a mission who has a real reason to feel this way and you know she's coming from a place of real grief and real hurt i do like however the film does suggest that she wasn't necessarily the nicest person before her daughter was killed Mm. i think the thing that you hear on the nail there is this is about grief but it's not a depressing film it's kind of similar to Manchester by the Sea in terms of it deals with some some very very dark material and some real tragedy that's happened to the characters but it has such a wonderful vein of humour going through it that it's just electrifying I find really sort of dark profane incendiary (laughs) humour running yeah and it is about grief it's about this woman who well I think it's one of those things where she is a good person with a strong sense of right or wrong and she doesn't suffer fools gladly but it means that she can be intractable sometimes and clearly she can just be annoying with that but it suggests that she had quite a destructive relationship with her ex-husband um, who's played, played by, by John Hawkes. Yes, and that's right, yes. And there's a couple of flashbacks that yeah, suggest that she didn't have the best relationship with her daughter <clears throat> and that she doesn't have a best relationship with her son uh, who's played by Lucas Hedges who of course... Was in Manchester by the Sea. That's right. It was Oscar nominated for Manchester by the Sea. It has an amazing cast. This film does of um, of people who are just absolutely fantastic character actors who are well established, like Francis McDormand and Woody Harrelson and Sam Rockwell, and also people like Lucas Hedges and Caleb Landry Jones, who owns the the local sort of well yeah the local le- business le- yeah and Peter Dinklage. And uh, Zaliko Ivanek, who plays the desk sergeant, and sort of Zaliko Ivanek and Woody Harrelson and Sam Rockwell have all become part of um, sort of the Martin McDonough players. Mm. Uh, they they all appear. I mean, Zaliko Ivanek's, I think, the only actor to appear in all three films uh, that, um, that that Martin McDonough's done. And uh, Sam Rockwell was in his previous was uh, sort of the co lead in his previous film in Seven Psychopaths. In Seven yeah. Psychopaths and. It's a really f- interesting look at small town America, at prejudice and at anger. I mean, uh, it's, it's interesting in that Woody Harrelson, who in Seven Psychopaths was sort of a, a scumbag gangster, 
here is sort of the soul, as far as it goes, the soul of decent, the the, the, the most probably the most fun, just decent, immediately decent person in the film. Yeah. In terms of you know he's a sheriff and he's he's pretty good at his job, and he's not so, and and you understand why the townspeople are defensive are defensive of him. Yeah, there's a sense of that the town has come out against Mildred because he is a decent guy and he does keep order. But you can also see, well, actually, he also has under his charge Deputy Dixon, who is a racist, who does have a history of oppressing minorities within the town. So as uh, as is explored, particularly as it's sort of a uh... yeah, and there's and there is a scene that uses language and uses different forms of language and, and what is the correct use of language in such a funny way, and it's so it's so clever in terms it's of so how... pointed. Yeah, and it and it could have. It could have slipped into being misjudged. Um, it could have slipped into Tarantino territory. Yeah, indeed, but it doesn't. And I thought, yes, I am in the hands of someone who has a wonderful story to tell here and is telling it in a really, really smart way. And, yeah, it is one of those where you do think, OK, so Woody Harrelson's going to... He's going to strong armour, but that doesn't really happen. There are certain things in Mildred's behaviour where you think, well, actually, you are closer to the Sam Rockwell character than I think you realise sometimes, particularly when you talk about how this should be solved. And um, in her grief, it's like, well, you are saying things that we can't do because there are certain things such as civil liberties and things like that. But for her, it's all about, like, yeah, this, it's been a year now and this hasn't been solved and I can't get over my grief. And she's she's a real she's a closed fist of a person, isn't she? Mm, indeed, but she's also really smart, and yeah, she won't suffer fools gladly. So I really like the scene when the local priest goes to have a word with her about like yeah about these billboards, and you shouldn't do this. And her dressing down of him is absolutely fantastic, which and, is what brought to mind Calvary. Yeah, indeed. Uh, in the same way, I mean, this film. John Michael McDonough's uh, latest, which I didn't think was particularly good, was War is War on Everyone, mm. which is kind of making a comedy about corrupt cops, but in, in a way that it, it does humanise them and redeem them to an extent, in a similar way that this film does with Dixon, who is, it starts off you know, as, as this dim-witted thug, um, this dim-witted racist thug who's done abhorrent things, and the film doesn't, doesn't seek to justify those things. One thing I love about Sam Rockwell's performance in this is He's got certain traits that he, that that McDonough clearly sees in him. McDonough uses him a lot to play characters who are not in themselves particularly bright, but they have this sort of this this dangerous glint in their eyes. Yes, that even when they that even when they're being a bit sort of dopey and a bit, you do think this is somebody who could just cause go. a lot of damage. Yeah, yeah. The Sam Rockwell character, his character Dixon. And I wonder, is that like a reference to the Mason-Dixon line, or is it something, or is it just a bit of a southern name that you I, would? I think it's a Dixon Dot Green reference. Yes, it could be Dixon <laughs> of Dog Green, yes, it is. Uh, well, McDonough is yeah, Irish, so yeah, it's, it's not impossible. Yeah, dude. But there, I think, it's one of those things where you watch this character, and as you said, he starts off as a dim-witted racist who isn't above using strong-arm tactics on people that he thinks, well, like, you know, blacks, basically. And, but um, thing, when, you, when you say above using strong-arm tactics, I don't think he's got... I don't think he... As a person, again, this isn't justification. I don't think he has anything of it in, in his toolkit other than strong arm tactics. But I think the thing is when you when you see this character, because I think he is the most interesting character in this, and he has this arc of kind of not a self realization at all, but it's one of those things where he does begin to to shift and he becomes more of a sympathetic character. And there you kind of think, this is a child. This is a child who, you know, when he doesn't get his own way or when things happen that he doesn't have the emotional toolkit to deal with, he reacts with violence. 
The only thing is, he is empowered to use a gun <laughs> however he wants, really. Because there is a scene in this film, I'm not going to spoil it, where he reacts very, very strongly to something quite sad that has happened. And the way he does it is, um, I think, is is a really good example of the level of threat and violence that Martin McDonagh knows to take this film to without going over the edge, so to speak, even though that is a bit of a pun on what happens. Mm. There was just so much tension in that, because you're thinking, I just don't know, this is a child. I've got, I've got no idea what he's going to do in this situation because he's so upset. What's going to happen? And then what happens after that is also really interesting with his character. Although it has to be said, because this film has come out to widely five-star reviews. I mean, I gave it five stars in my review. But there has been some criticism that's been building over the past few months in terms of the depiction of Mildred. Because I think that she is a very strong female character. Lots of people have said, no, she's not a strong female character. She is um, as shrewish. It's one of those things where she is clearly a bad mother. And I'm thinking, well... I'm not saying that she's speaking for all women here. I'm just saying that she is a really interesting character who is who is being portrayed by Frances McDormand absolutely flawlessly, I think, in terms of her erratic nature, the fact that she's not particularly likable, but you understand where a lot of this is coming from, and and also the Sam Rockwell character and the arc that I find really impressive. Lots of people have said no, this no, we're not going to accept this. So it's interesting that there has been a bit of a backlash against this film. And that's the thing, I, I, I. I find his art, I find his character really fascinating, but yeah, I do think there are certain ways, certain ways. The fact that film doesn't really address race, it's not, it's not about race. It's about this character and his prejudice, in a way. There's that... always underlying that there's Mildred works in a local gift shop that's owned by this black woman, and there's this underlying sense that things have happened that they have been witness to or they've been subjected to at the hands of people like Dixon. I found that race was one of these things that was just like always bubbling under everything that was happening here even though you're right it wasn't actually about that I am um, and I think I think part of it is is well the, the narrative of the of this award season you know last year Moonlight won mm. and it's the film it's it's uh, it's a it's a black film starring a largely black cast directed by a black director written by a black playwright mm. and the fact that this one that is like you know having done that if they say this was to win best picture as it, as it well could does it seem like a bit of a, it's a bit self-congratulatory to say, okay, we, we've, you know, we gave it to the black film last year. This film, this year, we're giving it to a film in which the main arc is arguably about humanising a racist. Yeah, that's really interesting, and that's the thing is that's completely removed from this film. But you're absolutely right. The way that we see films now, I think, is shot through a political lens. I was watching Crash a few months ago, the Cronenberg film, and you would not make a film like Crash now because, well, someone literally grabs a pussy in it. And the woman in the film kind of responds to that. It's, it's a film about sexual mania and fetishism and dark sexuality. And there were people who were watching it who were... Well, there were a few walkouts, but there were people who were clearly uncomfortable with the level of male sexual aggression in it. And I just reminded of Cronenberg when he said, these are just characters, I don't really have a political statement to make. Um, and he was actually saying that about The Brood, another film of his... But you're right, I think now this film is going to be looked at as, okay, so it's about, I've got a strong female character, so that's a big tick in its favour. But it does show the arc of someone who is abhorrently racist, rather than being nicely racist, who is a racist. 
and is that something that we want to recognise? And it'll be interesting to see what they go with because, of course, you have Get Out as well. And Get Out, which was... Was it on your top ten of the year last year as well? No, it just missed out. But it, I think it made our overall list, didn't it? Yes, yeah. it did. That's there as well, and that deals with a lot of the same things that are in this film as well, but much more overtly. Yeah, I think that any vote at the Oscar next year is going to be a political vote rather than a... Um, you know, a real vote for the quality of the film, even though Get Out, I thought, was also a five-star film. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because they think, well, this is just a really, really amazingly well-told story with some fantastic characters in it. And it also makes room for all the supporting characters, like Peter Dinklage, who, despite himself, just really likes Mildred and wants to be with Mildred, even though she really is not very nice to him. And you can say it's about a community coming together as well, and they band around different people, but you get a sense that there is a community spirit. I like Caleb Landry-Jones in this film. Caleb Landry-Jones was in War on Everyone, playing essentially the Zodiac Killer. Yeah, he was really scary in that, wasn't he? Uh, and in this, it's nice because, you know, he was, he was also in American Mate, which we saw last year, in which he played a sort of this real redneck scumbag, the Tom Cruise's brother-in-law in it. And in both this film and in The Florida Project, he plays, again, just n- nice, normal, decent people. He's an actor to watch. I really like it when he's in films, even though I did not recognise him from War on Everyone because he plays such a different character here. So he plays the guy that owns the small firm that rents out the billboards, and, and he's someone who is completely committed to Mildred's right to ask questions of authority. And as a fellow scrawny ginger man, I, you know, I, want, I, want, I, want us to be, I want us to be well represented on screen. I don't want, I don't, don't want us to always, always be the villains. I don't want us to... <laughs> yes, even though that's the part you're born to play. <laughs> it's like in The Disaster Artist where it's like, you could play villains and vampires and you would be a star. There is a real malevolence surrounding <laughs> yeah. you. I'm trying to give you a shortcut here, Rob. <laughs> shortcut to success. Play villains. Yeah, sorry, you just got me thinking about the politics around this now, and that, yes, it will be very interesting. I think that she's a dead cert for Best Actress. Sally Hawkins. People, Sally Hawkins, yeah. People just really more... She gives another very strong performance, but I think people are just more... This is more of a powerhouse performance. It is. It's one of those... Arguably, Sally Hawkins has the more difficult role because, of course, she's not, you know, she can't speak in the film, so it's all done through gesture and facial expression and movement. But... I, Tonya, Margot Robbie, she might be the... She might, might be the dark horse. Yeah, she could be, because she is absolutely fantastic in that as well. I mean, to be completely honest, it's, it's a bit of a shame that it looks like it is going to be such a political Oscars next year, because the films that are up are great. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from the one we're going to talk about next. But, um, but I, Tonya was... Yeah, I think it was five stars. And this is five stars, and Get Out is five stars. And they're all... They're not worthy, but dull. They're all films that are very, very lively and, and acerbic... And I think do test the audiences um, and engage with. They engage the audience, yeah, yeah, yeah. They do, and I think they also do test um, yeah, the audiences' responses to quite difficult characters sometimes. One thing I do, and one thing I like about uh, Three Billboards in the context of Mark McDonough's filmography is uh, the fact that he's previously been. He makes a point in Seven Psychopaths, which gets very meta, in essentially admitting that he can't write female characters. Mm-hmm. And I actually went to a Q&A with him where I don't think I was as diplomatic as I could be because he makes a lot of fun about of action tropes while indulging them. And uh, going back to our one, one of our, one of Robin, my favourite phrases, I did sort of say, you know, do you think by doing, you know, by acknowledging these things and then doing anyway, doing them anyway, it's a bit like sort of having your cake and eating it. Did you say that to him? Yeah. I don't know that. Oh, wow. To which his, his what response, did he say? <laughs> uh, I like cake. That was his response. Oh, right, see. That is a disappointing answer to a very good question. 
Because, yeah, it is one of those things. I, mean, I think here, because this is an original script, and it seems as if he sets out to say, right, I am going to write a, a woman of note, someone who is a strong... As strong a character as all the men have been in my other films. And, again, it's also one of those things where um, a lot of people have said, well, the only reason that she's strong is because a man raped her daughter. And it's like... Well, that's just given her, that's just given her I, a mission. And yeah, I, I, I think it's, you can go down this rabbit hole with like quite a few things. I mean, the only reason Ripley's strong is that she has to face an alien. That's right, yeah. An alien. She's strong because she's just trying to be a good mother. I mean, yeah, I mean, if, if, if a Terminator <laughs> hadn't come up to Sarah Connor... Yeah, it is one of those things where I think, yeah, you can, yeah, you can make that argument if you want. I don't think it holds water, particularly when you see the quality of the film itself. And it also, I think, plays really well with different tropes of these films. There's there's like an element of, of the spaghetti western in there and the score sometimes by Carter Burwell, who works with the Coen brothers a lot. And this does have the feel of a Coen brothers film. And Frances McDormand is married, I think, to Joel Cohen, isn't she? She is. Um, but there's also lots of standoffs on Main Street, and there's lots of people with guns on their hips standing on Main Street having a showdown, and it's like, there is a really good sense of genre filmmaking here, I think. So yes, we think you should go and see three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Especially if it comes down to a choice between this and the yes. next film we're going to talk Shall about. we move on to the next film? Yes. Okay, cool. So let's move on to Darkest Hour, which comes on... Dullest Hours. Dullest Hours. It comes on a wave of hype, all of it surrounding Gary Oldman's performances. William Churchill. William Churchill? Fucking hell. Winston Churchill. (laughs) Sorry. Winston Churchill's lesser known brother, William. William. I would watch that. If he was. He's just slightly off, you know, he's actually got the shot of him delivering a wheel right on the beaches and the camera just pans over and it's just William standing. Hello. Hello there. Hello there. I'm William Churchill. (laughs) So... Bill yes. Churchill. Bill Churchill here. We'll get on to Bill in just a minute. So Winston Churchill, uh, not sure who he was, at the point where he becomes Prime Minister of Great Britain during at the beginning of World War Two, and has to face the huge decision of whether to stand alone and fight against the Nazis who were sweeping across Europe or to sue for peace and essentially admit that they would be under Nazi rule. Uh, of course, he thought that we shouldn't do that. That was the right decision. And the film is about that. There's a bit of Dunkirk in there. There's um, there's lots of of him wrestling with this decision whilst also having to um, to try and withstand the critics in his own party who said that yeah we should be suing for peace. And that's the thing is you know Chamberlain is uh, is a figure in this played by Ronald Pickup, mm. and he's just resigned over over a criticism of of his sort of handling of. Uh, well, it was hounded out, really, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. But people, are, but people immediately assume <clears throat> that we went straight from Chamberlain compromise and um, what's the term? Appeasement. Appeasement. Sorry, into Churchill. Rah rah rah. Let's go to war. Mm-hmm. And of course, we didn't. And no. there were, and it was a far more complex issue than that. World War One was still well in everybody's consciousness at the time, and mm-hmm. and Churchill was viewed as a you know a, a warmonger with a disastrous record yeah. as as um the king as king george says and as king george played by ben mendelson ben, ben, ben mendelson who's been getting around a lot recently he has and he's good and it's, it's that's the thing that i did not like this film this film was directed by joe wright who i think is a director who always manages to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory i don't think he's actually made a really good film his films often have really good moments in them 
Atonement, I think, is probably the film that was closest to being a good film, and it has that wonderful five-minute single-take sequence on the Dunkirk beach. He doesn't try anything like that here, but there are some Dunkirk scenes to kind of break up the scenes of um, old men talking in cabinet Shadowy rooms. rooms yeah. yeah. But I think his films always ring slightly inauthentic. I think that they're actually quite smug. I think if you look at something like The Soloist, I mean, The Soloist was just, it's just the worst example of Oscar chasing. That's the Jamie Foxx one where he's... Um, a mentally ill um, cellist? Probably. Yes, he's like a... He's a prodigy, yes, but he's mentally ill. And Robert Downey Jr. is this, 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 this journalist who kind of seeks out his story. It's based on, it's based on true stories. Yeah, it? it is, yeah. But my God, is that an Oscar chasing film? And it's also one of those films where they went to Skid Row and they rubbed shoulders with real homeless people... And it's a real celebrity loving, and it Ooh. ends with a party with all the crew and the cast and, and the homeless people all saying, "Oh, look at this!" And it's like, "Yep." And then you all went back to your mansions in the evening, and they all went back. To and they all went back right. to the streets. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's such a smug film that is. So always never watch it. And Hannah was good for launching Saoirse Ronan, yeah. but it's a film. Where the soundtrack is so much better than the actual film itself. Uh, it's the Chemical Brothers, isn't it? Sasha Ronan, who's like the Oscar contender for Ladybird. Yes, indeed, that's right. So, yeah, so I don't think that Joe Wright is a particularly good filmmaker. And the thing about Darkest Hour is it, it just plays like a bank holiday special that you will see on BBC One or ITV. And it's broader than Victoria and The Crown, I think. It's one of those that really sticks to the... To the image of Churchill, the romanticised image of Churchill as... The embattled, cigar-puffing, heavy-drinking... I mean, and Gary Oldman is very... Gary Oldman is very good. I is think. he, though? I think... I th- <laughs> sorry, I think he's very good within the limits of the role. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And I think he'll probably win the Oscar for it. Yeah. Which is a real shame, because I, I, I recently rewatched, for instance... Uh, I mean, he's ha- he's got a career of disappearing into characters you know w- without prosthetics mm. and you know i recently watched um rewatched uh, tinker taylor soldier spy in which he plays george smiley and in which he's just so good so incredible and, and the fact that he i think he, i think he might have got a bafta on for it he got an oscar he got, on he did get an oscar for it yeah. but it, that was never going to be because it didn't have him standing up in front of parliament and giving a big speech and yes a rum thing in that way that they like to put into show reels if he wins the Oscar for this, because I thought this was one of those things where it's like, well, you're basically playing it like a barra boy, a man of the people who's an eccentric. He, he drinks constantly during the day, has a bottle of champagne for breakfast. Um, he quarrels with Clemmy. Quarrels with Clemmy, and it's like his wife. wife played by uh, Kristen Scott Thomas. Yeah. And it's like, this is the romantic view of Churchill. And I'm sorry, but this is a guy who was born in a palace, <laughs> loved being an aristocrat really didn't have that much time for the working classes. I mean, he, he drank champagne three times a day, three bottles of champagne a day, at a time when most people would never drink champagne in their life. It was such a luxury. And this is what Nigel Farage has been trying to do with his career. He's been trying to be Winston Churchill as portrayed but he's got, in Dark. He's got Hour. the drinking down, just not He's the, got the drinking down and, and the racism. Po- possibly. <laughs> possibly. Let's possibly got the drinking down oh yes because he's still alive yes mm, well um yes he's possibly got well he he does like a drink doesn't he and he does like to smoke um, and, and that's the thing i mean churchill held some talk going back to the politics of it some let's say deeply problematic views 
mm-hmm. uh, especially regarding the colonies. And there's, there's, there's the first time that you actually see Churchill in this film, he's lit by uh, the glow of, of, a, of a match. Mm. Uh, a, a sort of a Lucifer, as they, I, th- I think they were. Right. Okay. Uh, and the fact that this does, and, and his face kind of glows red. And when he first appears, I was like, "Ooh, that's a really interesting first shot of him." You know, he looks he looks genuinely de- demonic in that. Is this a film that is in any way? Are they like, I would love for this film to sort of say, "What's and all?" Here he was. He was a brilliant orator. He did. He led us through the war. However, he was. He was problematic. <laughs> he was yes, problematic. I think. I think. Yeah. If we're going to put putting it mildly, but this is again. Yeah, as you say, another glossy Sunday afternoon. Mm. Actually, it is Sunday afternoon because it's only a PG. That's right. Because this is a guy who, and yes, we can say that it was different at the time, but this was a guy who said he didn't understand why there was so much fuss around using a bit of gas to keep the colonies in order. Yeah, and, and it's like. Well, talked about you know eliminating the scourge of Gandhiism. Yep, that's right. It was uh, well, yeah, because he was a warmonger. He loved the bluster of battle. So therefore, someone professing peace is just going to be complete anathema to him. And that's that's the reason why I don't think the Gary Oldman's very good in this. I think that his makeup's very good. You can't see the join on the jowls, but I think that. <laughs> It's a one-note performance. It's just him going. Bah, 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 and there I'm... is there is there is that one scene that we both we both. Yes, we'll get to that in just a second. Because oh no, oh, I, well, I mean the one uh, he, where he has to call up FDR. Yes, yeah, there was one scene. Do you want to talk about it? Because uh, I mean, who voices who voices FDR in that scene? David Strathairn. David Strathairn. Yeah, uh, where Churchill essentially has to call up FDR, who in America's not yet being involved in the war, and essentially try and very humbly negotiate, uh, argue for the delivery of weapons which we had actually purchased of them at that point. Yes. But due to the non-aggression, the, yeah, the, the non-aggression pact they'd signed and the kind of isolationist stance they were taking, they there was no way of them actually getting the weapons to us without it looking like they were giving us weapons, even though we'd bought them. So therefore, we had to arrange for transportation themselves, but we couldn't use any motorized vehicle for it. And it's a really, really good scene in showing just how absolutely desperate Churchill and, by extension, the country was at that point, and how alone. England, or sorry, the UK stood at that point, which is, I mean, that's a really interesting story. Well, because, like more of this, please. Well, yeah, because Nazi Germany had pretty much conquered Europe by this point. You're thinking, well, we are a small island nation, and there is this much larger country that is now much, much larger because it's annexed and conquered so many other countries around it. It was quite a decision to uh, to stand. So that's a good scene. And there are a couple of... That's the thing about Joe Wright, is that there, he does have a good visual eye sometimes, and there are a couple of moments that I thought were good during the battle sequences, which are very, very brief, but there's visually some things in there that I'd never seen, including a shot that ends on a dead soldier's face that I thought, that's a really impressive shot. Why can't you just do more like this? And it's not a question of him being a slave to his own words, because he doesn't always write a script, and he didn't write this script here. This was written by Anthony McCartan, who wrote The Theory of Everything, which explains a lot. Yeah, it explains everything, doesn't it? The theory of everything <laughs> apart from Stephen Hawking's theories, because right. we just don't have, we just don't want to get into them because they might confuse people. That's right. We we are too scared to say why this guy was so intelligent. So therefore, yes, take just, our word for it. Yeah, look, he was, we all know he's really clever. Let's just proper uh, clever clogs. This one, <laughs> proper clever clogs. Yeah. A bit too big for his boots in some ways. That would have been a much more interesting film if it was a script about what, suggesting hubris. <laughs> If it was a script, if if the theory of everything 
was from the starting point, I don't like Stephen Hawking. <laughs> that would be a much more interesting I mean, isn't film. that in one way? In like, won the Oscar. To a degree, a, a really good way of approaching almost any biopic. Yeah, Especially of, of, ca- of characters, of, of, of people who are revered and... Well, I think there, that's something that happens more in... Maybe because you can say that it, it takes more time and you have to pay more attention than if you're making a film. But when writers are writing about a person, they typically, or sometimes, will end up just not liking that person. And the most famous example here, I think, or a famous example, is Joseph McBride, who was writing a book about Frank Capra, and by the end of it, just hated Capra. Because of all the research he'd done, he thought, no, this was a complete hypocrite who made his living off a lie. And when he was tested to actually be a Capra-esque hero in front of the House of Un-American Activities Committee, completely failed and, yeah, capitulated. Was Mr Smith Goes to Washington before that or after that? It was way before. So, therefore, you can think, well, you live this, so what happened? So, yes. Yeah, in the case of The Dark Stars, there's another really good sort of ensemble. I, ben Mendelssohn as King George... Who's, who's got a real reserve that we never really sort of crack through in a way that sort of, you know, the King's speech, you know, let you behind the curtain, mm. the great man. And uh, and the fact that, you know, kind of it downs places stutter. He's got a very rotastic sort of... He is... His yes, speech it, patterns are... It is wubby you, isn't it? It is wubby you, wubby you, wubby you the whole way because I don't want to get stuck on the fact that he has a stutter, I suppose. But it was like, well, we all saw the King's speech. We all know this was the guy that had the stutter. So therefore, the fact that he's not stuttering... I found slightly off-putting because it's like, well, it appears to be all right then. <laughs> um, and you and you got uh, Stephen Delaney as Lord Halifax, who was sort of essentially the preferred candidate. Yes, and and according to the film, is the most vociferous of all the critics of Churchill in Churchill desires to go to war. And yeah, he's. I mean, that's the thing is that he's good, but everyone gives, I think, quite a broad performance because they're just following Gary Oldman's lead. So yeah, Kristen Scott Thomas is just dutiful wife who sometimes has to roll her eyes at his eccentricities. Uh, <laughs> and there's Lily James, who... Is in an utterly thankless role as his secretary, who may... I don't... Was she, was she playing an actual person? Yeah, she was. And there's a picture of her who looks distinctly older than Lily James was. And I think that Lily James is in there just so they can put a young person onto the poster. And somewhere, it's like, you know, she's kind of our in as an audience in terms of, you know, the great man and his private correspondence. But like, obviously, how could we have related to an older actress in that role? Also, I never got from the film the sense that he was a great orator, a magician with words. That was his one undeniable strength, was that he was so gifted with language and that he could galvanise an entire nation. But... I'm not getting that from this film. He's, you know, him scratching out words in a speech and going, blah, 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 what's another word for that? Doesn't really sum up his power of language. Again, I just think it's a limitation of the script and of the direction. That they couldn't get that across. You're thinking, well, that's the one thing that he was very good at that still has stood the test of time and doesn't look a bit weird now or a bit problematic. Yes, indeed, to use that word. That Talk, talk about problematic scenes or scenes with which we took issue. Yeah, so let's see. So I was thinking, yeah, OK, this is fine. So watching this and, yes, it's like a bank holiday Monday film. I thought it would actually be a bit more serious and this is, this is actually played quite broad. There's a scene in which he gives the V sign, but he gives it with his fingers facing forwards and has to be told why that's rude. Um, And that's the kind of scene that your mum would like. And I thought, but yeah, this is, okay, this is the kind of film it is. All right, then. And in a way, I was thinking this is probably Joe Wright's most consistent film. And then there's that scene where he goes on the London Underground. (laughs) 
which I think is going to be one of the scenes of the year, and it is a scene that is so misjudged that it actually ruins the film. It turns the whole thing into a laughable enterprise. I mean, for one thing, it takes him far longer to get to Westminster than... Yep. Than... <laughs> and that's one thing that the... Because it is a scene in which he goes into the tube and he's trying to find his way around to find his way to Westminster, and if he was to swap Oldman for Paddington Bear it would be no less ludicrous than what you're watching. I just could not... Possibly less. Yes, it would be, because it would make more sense, because we did use a lot of public transport. And you expect to see me on the tube much more than Winston Churchill, who, of course, would never have rubbed shoulders with the hoi polloi. And the fact that apparently, uh, as you said, I think you told me the scriptwriter tried to justify it by saying, well, there were were times where, you know, Churchill did go rogue. I mean, while we can't say he was on the tube, you know, he could have been doing anything. It's like, no, he was going out for a drink. Or he was sleeping it off. Or sleeping it off. It's like, that's... Yeah, and for whatever reason, his it sounds better to say Mr. Churchill was unavailable for these hours as opposed to, yeah, he had a stonking hangover. <laughs> he had a bastard behind the eyes. Yeah, because I don't know about you, but when I was watching it, I was thinking, this has to have happened to put this in this film. This is so preposterous, what you're watching right now. It's He goes onto the tube and engages a carriage full of people in the crisis that the country is facing and yeah, says, should we surrender? Should we sue for peace? No! Um, no! No! Never surrender! <laughs> and, it's so, and it's ridiculous. The whole thing is absolutely ridiculous. And I thought, it's so ridiculous, this has to have been true. So, of course, after the film, I went on to Google and it was actually a predictive search answer yeah, when I was typing it in. It's like, all right, so everyone's looking for this then. And yes, Anthony McCartan said, yeah, while there is no evidence, um, he did have these missing hours and it was suggested that he would go to pubs in the area to canvas local opinion. So you didn't give a fuck about what the local people thought. And actually, you can't get away with this shit if it didn't happen I'm exactly just saying, like that. Missing time is also a known symptom of UFO abduction. <laughs> yes. So I'm saying, I'm, I'm calling it, there's no evidence for it, but I'm saying he was in communion with the Martians. That holds just as much water as the idea of him going onto the tube and canvassing local opinion. I don't know about you, but I just thought this is such a condescending view of working <laughs> classes. And I put in my review, I'm watching the end credits of this film, I was thinking, I expect the characters to be called... Ethel Yorkshire Pudding and Winston Blackman and Sally Salt of the Earth. Hello, I'm Bill Bank Holiday Monday and Barry Backstreet Abortion. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, if we're doing if we're doing a fair representation of, of the time. Yes, absolutely. Barry Backstreet's abortion is I think he's the one that says that we He's the one with the co hanger. He was the <laughs> He's on his way to work. I've got a hot coat angry, <laughs> Mr. Churchill. Let me at him. We'll scrape our way to victory. <laughs> well, I think I think I think I think that's everybody's just tuned. Everyone's just turned this off. So <laughs> I'm sorry, but that is not as offensive as the view of working class people in Darkest Hour. It just isn't because it is. It is rubbish. It is. Beryl binge drinking and Timothy Teabag. <laughs> Wayne Wagon Wheels were bigger in my day, I think, was, uh, was, yeah, was my favourite character from that particular point. 
And it is one of those where there is um, a Sikh woman, I think she is, and you're thinking, look, I know that you are making a point about multicultural London now. That makes this even more ill-advised I think because this is really really taking me out of this film it's um sorry Barry Backstreet abortion <laughs> honestly it's like that is the level of characterization of ordinary people in this film and you watch and you it you do thinking, expect somebody to be holding a pint do you yeah, yeah, that's the thing. And it was one of those things where it's like, no, look, it is realistic because they're all smoking on the tube. Like, yep, yeah, that makes it really realistic. And there's Molly Moppet over there, this little girl who's saying, no, we'll never surrender, we'll never surrender. It's like, why is she talking? Adults are around. At the time, she would have a clip around the ear for talking. It's, I'm sorry, but and this fact, scene and fact, is And the fact there is the black, there is the black guy in the scene. Who literally pops up in who's the frame with who just, big who just pops up with like a, hello, I'm clearly an equal and comfortable in this environment. That's right. He pops up into frame with a big smile on his face and it's like, oh, I know you're not racist, all people involved in this movie, but that is a weird image to see. And it looks a bit black and white minstrel show from 1978, that does. I just don't think that you know enough about these people to convincingly portray them in a film. Therefore, everything comes across as absolutely condescending and uh yeah i think you should maybe talk to someone that's lived in a council house someone that had to save up for three years to go on a holiday maybe because all this seems a bit fucking rada right now uh the more i think about that scene the more i think no one should have got paid for their work in this film because that's amateur hour to put a scene like that in there <laughs> it well, is it's like I, you can't I, get away with that yeah i, I like your way thank you I, I, I'm sure you can be the one to tell the best boy that he's not. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's the thing. Yeah, because, um, none of the major players. So the director, the scriptwriter, and Gary Oldman should not have got paid for that scene because their decision to do that scene is so ill-advised. It yeah suggests they don't know what they're doing. When I was watching it, and I was reading my notes back at the beginning of the scene. I, I wrote down, "Is it going to tip its hand?" By the end of the scene, I was actually screaming at the screen because we got it on an award screener. Stop doing this. Stop doing this. You are ruining your movie. Well, I, I, um, talking to another friend who, who's seen the film, that, you, uh, that you'd mentioned there was a scene in, in it and that he'd know the scene when he got to it. Oh, yeah. And uh, he sort of said about, you know, about watching it with, it with his wife and sort of and being a couple of moments being like, is that the scene? That was a bit misjudged. Like, that, maybe that might be the scene. Oh, maybe, that, maybe, maybe he's referring to that bit. No, he's... And then they hit this scene and they went, oh, it's the scene. There is no doubt that we have the scene right now. The scene with Barry <laughs> Uh, honestly watch the film and yes you will say oh yeah they completely shit the bed at the end of that film yes rubbish rubbish this film I'm sorry but the fact that this is getting four star reviews I well personally I don't suppose to talk for you but I thought that this film actually was a rubbish movie this is a two star film it is isn't it I I, I don't think I I really liked um, uh, Three Billboards I'd, I'd give that four stars I think I, that's fine for me, but yeah, got Yes, but, uh, you know, split, so, so, yeah, sort of splitting the difference, yeah. So we've had uh, one, I think we both agreed, very good film. Yep. And one really not very good film, both of which, in their own way, you could say, or has been argued, have problems with race. Yeah, that's right. I don't know where Joe Wright goes from here. Although this film is getting some pretty good reviews. and Empire gave it a four-star review. I don't know what film they were watching. What did Baz from the Daily Mail have to say about it? 
Oh, do you know what? I haven't read those. Um, no, but yeah, you'd have to. It'll be on the poster. Yes. It'll have given, <laughs> yeah, given, given, given them the... A million have, stars! It'll have given them the <laughs> usual fawning poster quote that he gives to every Sunday afternoon film. Yes, it will. All the stars from the EU flag should be given to this film. Um, absolute top. Shows why Europe needs us. Shows, yes. Shows why we will always win when we stand alone. It's like, yeah, that's right. I wasn't sure that's the message we should be taking from this film. <laughs> Just... Yeah, I'm not entirely sure that they knew what the message of this film was. Yeah, I don't know how you, what you do next with a film like this. Yeah, anyway. So Darkest Hour, Shit the Bed, has a scene in it that, I think it's one of those where you think it's worth watching that scene just to see how wrong a film can go. But then like, you like, watch it. Like, while sort of like, yeah, this like you're watching it, and the other scene is this scene is technically proficient. It's well shot. It doesn't. It's but it's just. I can almost understand how when they came up with the scene, somebody might have gone, you know what? I'm, it's a little bit, bleh, but you know, I'm sure, I'm sure it'll be fine. We'll get it. But I don't understand how what, when they were watching that back, they didn't go. Oh, I think we might have misjudged that one. Yes, on the nose, isn't it? Um, hmm. Shall we have a go? I don't know. Shall we cut it out? Because you don't need it either. You don't need that scene. It's one of those scenes where it, you could take that scene out and it wouldn't affect anything. Ready with my co-hanger, sir. <laughs> Let me out of Mr. Churchill. <laughs> oh, get him. <laughs> oh, oh. Sorry, there's so many different areas you can go with with that. <laughs> Um, no, no, actually, I'm not going to say that because it's quite offensive. Um, anyway, try and claw so, back the yeah, offensiveness. <laughs> we'll try and scrape back some dignity. So, um, so yes, ultimately, let's, no matter how offensive this is all getting, it's not as offensive as that scene in Darkest Hour, which shows that the people involved at that moment in time did not know how to do their jobs and. Who Who is Gary Oldman up against, do you think, at the Oscars? Well, Daniel Day-Lewis, even though Phantom Thread's not out yet. Probably Tom Hanks. That, maybe um, Daniel Kaluuya from, from, yeah, from uh, Get Out. Yeah. Possibly Jake Gyllenhaal for Stronger. Okay. Do you think there's going to be a bit of a left-of-field nomination for James Franco for The Disaster Artist? Uh, that's, that could happen, though. Although... Yeah, the recent allegations against him, I think, are going to kind of dent his chances of being could, nominated. Timothy Chalamet could get one for "Come By Your Name." Oh, interesting! It's not out of the uh, not out of their own possibility. Although the Academy are probably going to gay. We nominated a gay film last year. Yeah, indeed, and it won. Yeah. <laughs> Who won last year? Who won the Best Actor? Oh, it was oh, obviously um, Casey Affleck, wasn't it? So. If Darkest Hour gets nominated for Best Picture, something has gone horribly wrong. It will do. The King's Speech won Best Picture of that year, and I don't think that was a Best Picture winner at all. And that's the thing. It's like, you know, previously I complained about them leaving Best Picture slots empty when they could fill them with films like Carol. Yeah. Um, But this year, if it comes down to Darkest Hour or nothing, go with nothing, guys. Yeah. Turn off the light. Um, So, yeah, so I I suppose from that, just trying to think who is... I I just get the impression that Get Out is going to surprise lots of people. I think that might win the best picture and Daniel Kaluuya might win best actor because he is very good in that film and it is a film that I think stands or falls on his reaction to the events around him ah but then this is a real it's yeah it's based on true story is it though yeah transformed himself physically gives a big 
grandstanding performance. Yeah, uh, I just... I love Gary Oldman. I think he's really great. I just don't think he should win for this film because it isn't worthy of his talents and it's not as good as what he's done before. Um, so, yes, anyway. So, um, so yeah, that, they're the... They're the thoughts of me, Rob, and Barry Backstreet Abortionist. So, just one more time for the cheap seats. And uh, so, any closing thoughts you can, on uh, Darkest you, Hour? We look forward to your responses. Yeah. <laughs> and you can look forward to, I'm sure, yes, <laughs> to a full and frank apology on the next podcast. Once we've had time to actually step away from the microphone and we've stopped being so quite so giddy with, with our own amusement. We're so amusing. But no, I I stand by the fact that the that the portrayal of the characters is so broad that they are the names you would expect to see in the closing credits of that film, Your Honor. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's a, it's goodbye from Ernest Empire and Colin Colonialist, <laughs> and, and it's goodbye from Sally Salt of the Earth and Roger Rose Beef. Two one. <laughs> as sad as the spectacle of these billboards might be this reporter for one hopes this finally puts an end to the strange saga of the three billboards outside this doesn't put an end to shit you fucking retard this is just a fucking start why don't you put that on your good morning Missouri fucking wake up broadcast bitch you are